mindfulness mode. Who is the most important word in the human language? Welcome to Mindfulness Mode, and I'm here today with an inspiring guest. I'm here today with Nathaniel A. Turner. So, Nate, you've written three books, four books. You've written probably even more than that. I can't wait to get into this and talk to you all about this. But first of all, Nate, what does mindfulness mean to you? Um, one word, being, well, I should say two words, being present. When I think of, when I think of being mindful, I think of um, a, a scripture, biblical scripture, which is don't worry about tomorrow for it has enough worries on, of its own, which is that my responsibility is to not even worry about yesterday, not worry about tomorrow, but just stay in the in the present. So that's what I think of when I think of my well, I do too, and it makes such a difference, doesn't it, in our lives when we really focus on the present. Yes. And you have uh, achieved so much in your life, and I'm really excited to talk about some of the books you've written and some of the things you've done to inspire people. And I know that, that your goals are to help others and, and to help other people understand that their lives matter. Before we continue the interview, I'm going to cut in and tell you a little bit more about Nate's background. Nathaniel A. Turner is the author, like I said, of multiple books, including this one, a history-making book called Raising Superman. And it's a collection of letters that span two decades. And the reason for these letters were to prepare his son to be a great global citizen. Now, Turner has appeared in many media outlets, including Black Enterprise, iHeartRadio, The Good Men Project, all kinds of other ones. And as an advocate that every person has an opportunity to maximize their human potential, he shares through his courses, workshops, and conferences something called the Life Template. And that is a backward design life process he first developed to help his son meet the educational requirements of the top colleges and universities. So he created this this thing called the Life Template back in 1994 to help ensure that his child, who at that time was unborn yet, would get into Harvard University. Now, Turner's son not only met Harvard's admission standards way in the future, but he did so many other things. He was uh, able to speak four languages. He lived abroad playing soccer for more than a year, and he started a foundation to address teen homelessness. And he did all of this by his 16th birthday quite incredible. His son is now an electrical and computer engineering PhD student at one of the nation's premier graduate engineering schools. Now Turner himself holds multiple degrees ranging from accounting, he has a doctor of laws degree, a a juris doctor degree, and he's done TED talks, He's had so many incredible personal experiences that he, that he shares, and he just hopes to be remembered as a man who did his best to leave the earth better than it was when he arrived. So that's who I'm talking to. And now back to my question for Nate. How did you get to this point in your life, Nate, where you were so focused on helping other people? I think um, I think I'm I'm an example of what most people are an example of with this, this ideal of of nature versus nurture. I think sometimes some of what we get is genetic, and the other parts that we get 
are part of our environment or what's called, I think it's epigenetic. I think a lot of who I am today is about about my environment growing up and how I was nurtured. So I was, I'm a product of two parents who had um, varying ideals about what I should be. I mentioned to you earlier, I said, hey, just call me Nate. But my parents intentionally named me Nathaniel. My father wanted to name me, after, have my initials be N-A-T after Nat Turner. So he was a big believer in this, um, we would say today civil rights, but he was more, he was a slave and wanted to be find a way to, to be emancipated from slavery. And so my, and my father's ideal, this was a big hero of his. He wanted me to understand that I should have this revolutionary spirit. So that was part of my, my nurturing with him. And my mother was a, a staunch person of faith who believed that the word, the, the name Nathaniel being Hebrew, meaning gift of God, that you should, your life should manifest this presence of God and you should be willing to help and serve other people and make sure other people's life know they matter. So I think that's how I got to be whoever I am today from that, from that origin story. And when did you first realize that writing was one of the things you wanted to do in your life? Uh, I didn't consider myself a, a writer at all until my son told me at, I think he was 16, that I should take, well, so let me backtrack. I wrote my son letters as a, as a child. So before I even knew we were going to be parents, I started making notes about what I wanted to have happen for this this child. And when my son was born, I started writing notes, continue writing notes about what I'd like to have for his life. And then one day he and I walked to the mailbox and he he's two and he asked me where was his mail? And I said, hey man, there's nothing good in the mailbox, it's just bills. And he yeah. said, but I want mail dad. So I started writing him. And it, long story short, I wrote him probably hundreds of letters, but before, before he could graduate with his high school class, he made the decision at the end of his junior year, he did not want to return to high school for his senior year, that he had done everything he needed to do. And he wanted to chase his dream of playing professional soccer. So he moved to Brazil to, to train in one of Brazil's top soccer academies. It was at that time I took some of those letters that I'd written him over his childhood and put them in a binder and gave them to him. The letters were my way of saying to him that something happens to me, you'll have a guide about what it is that your father was hoping you would do as a man. And I spent a few days in Brazil while he was first few two days in the academy. And then my wife encouraged me to go back because she didn't think he was doing well. And when I arrived, he said this, Dad, I, did you put these letters in a particular order? I said, no, he said, I reread the first three letters. I remember my purpose, I'm gonna be fine. Whenever I come back, we're going to take these letters and publish them and share them with other families. Because when you tell me I could do something, not only do I believe I can do it, I know it's gonna happen. And so that's when I realized that I was a writer because this child told me to take these letters and share them with other people. Wow, what an amazing story. And tell us how that became Raising Superman. Yeah, so so the the letters were, so I started while he was in Brazil, you know, friends and family were like, you let your son go to another country? He's 7,000 miles away from you. And I said, yeah, I, I didn't let him go. This was just a part of his maturation in his household. His parents have always talked to him about, about dreaming and about doing as much as, you, as much as you possibly can with your life and realizing that tomorrow's not promised. You can't 
go forward and yesterday is gone. So what can you do today? And if the world were perfect, what would you be doing? And so for him, that meant he wanted to chase this dream that he realized he could only do for a certain period of time. He could only be so young and run up and down a soccer field for so long. So I said, I really didn't let him do anything. This was part of his dream. And I'm, I'm just the guide. And so the guide doesn't tell the traveler where the traveler can go. The guy just says, here's the way to get there. So, um, so I still, people would ask me, well, how's he doing? So I decided to start a blog called the Raising Superman Project. And I said to people, it's called Project because I really, we did, my wife and I really didn't know what we were doing. We were just like a, in a laboratory trying to figure out what are the best things to do to help this child. So in some ways it was like a project. And so we named the book Raising Superman because I called him as a child um, when he first was learning to read, he also would read comic books. And one of those comic books was Superman. Right. And he couldn't pronounce the R. He would say super. And rather than make fun of a child who's two, who's learned to read, I was like, well, don't worry about it. You're my Superman, too. And I've just been calling him Soup or Superman for the duration. I still call him that to this day. So that's how the book got its name. Right. And it's S-U-P-A. S-U-P-A. I didn't want to make sure I didn't get sued. I didn't want to get sued. No, no. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so this book has been read by thousands and thousands of people and inspired so many people. And as a result, you've ended up speaking in a lot of places. Tell us some of the places where you've shared your messages. Sure. I've been with just recently was with the National Education Association in Baltimore, Maryland, at their national um, conference. I've been with the NCAA. I've been with major corporations like Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. But I've been with school systems throughout the country um, speaking. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's so exciting. And, uh, you know, so many people know you through your writing. And uh, now you've uh, written something called... Um, let me see here. Now you've written something called Journey Forward. Journey Forward. Tell yes. us about that. How to use journaling to envision and manifest the life you always wanted. Right. Um, so I started a few years ago, but let me backtrack. I asked a child um, once upon a time, I think probably really early around four, and he started to play soccer. And the very first time, as you can imagine, you take a child somewhere who to do something they don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. He was um, apprehensive about doing it, said, I'm going to be the worst person here. And I said, yeah, you are, because the other kids know how to play already. and You don't. So it's OK. You're at the bottom. So guess what? Wonderfully, you have no place to go but the top. Uh, um, in the weeks leading up to the end of the soccer season, I think we were probably we, it was like eight weeks in his first season. He was starting to enjoy the game and then but wanted to, to wanted more to happen. So we were practicing and those kind of things. And I said, and it dawned on me as we were in the car one day, I said, son, you should just visualize. And he said, well, what is that? And so I'm explaining to a four-year-old what it means to visualize it. So he right. closes his eyes, you can imagine, real tight. And, and I said, well, you know, what do you see? And he's telling me about what he sees. And I see myself and I steal a ball and I run around the person and I kick it and it goes in the goal. And he goes out on the field and he does that very thing. And, and the next week he tells him what he's going to do and it, and it happens. And so now his whole life has been geared around this idea of seeing things and then doing kinds of work to make those things happen. Well, fast forward, he's now 
a 21 year old and he's received seven PhD fellowship offers and his parents have been invited to speak at this conference where, where he's also speaking. And there's a group of students there and they're making a connection between him and his parents. And they're like, you're his parents? And they said, well, do you do the same things he does? And one of those things was visualizing his best life and, and writing affirmations every day and speaking affirmations. And I was like, nope, I don't do it. And I'm like, oh man, what a hypocrite you are. <laughs> so, so I started journaling and I started writing about the life that I wanted to live because it had been working for this child. I've never done it. And so I started writing about the life that I wanted to live. And, and that was a journal. And rather than lament about things that didn't go right, which is the way a lot of people journal, I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to write about my life in, in a colorful, dynamic, creative, and emotive way and see what happens. And I started to share it with some friends. And I shared it with someone who is a, a pastor. And, uh, and she said, you know, I read my daily bread every morning. And then I read your journal. And she said, you should take this. And she started giving me all these things she wanted me to do. it. I said, I'm not, I absolutely am not doing nothing. I'm not doing any of that. If you want to do it, have at it. And she then she did. She took 55 entries and wrote um, exercises and um, reflections for people to use. And that thus became the book. And now I think I mentioned to you, I share with you, she's now got me doing them in an audio version as well. Wow. That's so exciting. Tell us about your experience on the TEDx stage. Um, interesting. I didn't, I had a friend who was, 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 who had been invited to speak at a, at a local TEDx. And he asked me if I'd be interested. I said, sure. It was one of the things on my, sort of my bucket list. And I gave the speech. I had no idea that anyone would watch it or care about it. And one day I, someone called me and said, Hey, can we talk? You've got like 300,000 views on your TED talk. And I was like, huh? And then it was, you know, 600,000 and 900,000 and a million. And, I, and the last I think I looked, it was maybe over a million and a half. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's crazy. I, I read the comments sometimes um, primarily because I'm curious if anything that I said or whatever I said that resonated with people. So that's, um, that's an interesting, because you know, you get a lot of like people say trolls. So you get a lot of that, but yeah. then you get some comments that are really heartfelt and and you and you say okay well i know why that message resonated and i know why maybe i should do more of what it is that i'm trying to do every day well your message definitely resonated with me i thought it was such a powerful powerful message that you shared in that in that talk would you ever do another tedx talk and if you did would what would the message be i, I would love to do one and i think today if i would do one it would be about civility it would, it would be my concern about a society that does not practice civility at all. So being living in the, in the United States, I, I tease my son all the time. I said, what America lacks, we need to add a new secretary and we need a secretary of citizenry because we live in a nation that is not clear about what it means to be a citizen. And I don't necessarily mean like a citizen of your, your local community. I mean, a citizen of the greater world. We're also interconnected. You and I are talking. You're in Canada. I'm outside of Indianapolis. And, and yet we don't understand 
other people's cultures. We're not competent about anything but the things that matter to us. We fragment every human we see. We look at people simply based upon the color of their skin or, or their gender or their sexual orientation, not realizing that all of us are like people that have a 360 degree lens and we only choose to look at one lens or one degree. And I said, I really think we need to find a way to, to do a better job of being whole humans who see each individual as, in, as a whole human. And that's one of the things I like to do is just talk about how we can do a better job of being citizens. Nate, when I look at how incredibly powerful you were as a father, I am just wowed. If you were to have another child now, what would you do differently? <laughs> Not. <laughs> Not. Um, um, well, I, mean, I have a 20-year-old too, so I, that's why I'm laughing because, yeah, not. Yeah, but, no, but no, uh, no. I just thought it would be an interesting question. No, it is a great question. I think, first of all, I would, I would, I would, love, I would love it. So um, my wife would be, was probably saying, well, I can't have any more children, so I don't know who you'd be having a child with. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, I think... Um, knowing what I know now, I always say to people like I'd be I'd be a mad scientist. So it would be it would be great. Um, the things that we did that people thought that were really out of the box then would be, be would be norms today. I, I don't know that I would be very very different. Not at all. I I have no. If it depends if it was a male or female. I guess there might be except I've raised a, a son and not a daughter. So maybe there'd be some some variation in that, but I don't think I would do a whole lot. I don't think I would do a whole lot different. I, I know some things now that I didn't understand before. For example, as a father at the time, I was in law school and you have this, this belief that you can have everything and mm -hmm. you can't. So I, I understand that fully now. Like get, You have to decide, are you going to be great as a father you can be okay as a as an employee or a business owner, but you're not going to be great at both things. There's no such thing as serving two masters. It took me a while to understand that and then to be comfortable with saying, you know what, the most important thing to me is the outcomes for my children, not how much money I make or how much personal or professional esteem people provide to me. The most important thing to me is how my son's life goes. And um, I don't know that I understood how complicated that was or all the work that was required in the beginning. But if I was to have a child today, I would know that going in. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. Now, I know uh, part of your mission and part of the work that your son has done is to do with uh, teen homelessness. Tell us about that and how you're able to make a difference in that space. So when we were talking earlier about, you know, nature versus nurture, one of the things that my family has done for years is rather than celebrate our birthdays or anniversaries or Christmas or those kind of things at home, doing stuff and buying a bunch of stuff for ourselves. One of the things we wanted our son to see early on is that I don't know if this is a cliche, but how blessed your life is by contrasting it with other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so very early we would take him to places where people weren't doing as well as he was. And it's, it's like most kids, you know, oh, really, we got to do this kind of thing again. And but, but one day, one of his um, high school teammates for his travel soccer team, his father, and he were having issues. And this young man's father said to him, you got to get out. 
And so now he actually knew someone who was homeless. And all of the things that we had been doing over the years sort of came full, um, came to the front, forefront. And he said, you know, I need to do more. And so he connected with an organization called DoSomething.org. And the first thing he did was they had a a collection of of gene drive. And so he started collecting clothing for homeless teens and found out that the largest segment of homeless people in America were teenagers. And so um, that that became a sort of a cause of his. And he started his own foundation called the Social Justice League and started to to work towards um, helping in that that condition. Wow. So. So incredible to be able to help so many people and to be so dedicated to do that. Now, I know that uh, some people call you a renaissance man. I know you speak all over the world. You've uh, spoken on a lot of stages. What pops into your mind as, as one of the most unusual and unique and interesting stages that you've spoken on? Uh, what is the most unusual stage that I've spoken on? I, you know, I don't know that it's a stage at all. I think the... M- when you were talking about homeless, I think the, the the best stage to speak on is not a stage at all. I mean, the, the places that I've been where I've appreciated being the most are with people who the rest of society sometimes looks down on. Um, I can tell you a, a quick story. Before the pandemic, um, I went, to, my wife and I went downtown in Annapolis. I think it was my birthday. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, this long story short is I, have a, I had a very good friend who shared my birthday. Um, I won't say how he passed, but he but he passed. And because we shared the same birthday, he was no longer around for more than 20 years. He's a part of my life, my family's life. And usually when my birthday rolls around, I get really depressed. Mm. And and my mother and other folks would say to me, you got to figure out something else to do rather than getting in this place of depression because of the passing of your friend. And so I decided that on my birthdays, I would go and celebrate my birthday with people who are often not celebrated. Mm-hmm. So I would go, I, there's places in Indianapolis and downtown in particular, I would go and buy gift cards for people and just walk around to folks who are, are quote unquote unhoused and offer to share a meal with them on my birthday. And you get to talk to people. And and though to me that's the best the best stage. I get to learn a lot about who I think that I am. I get to learn a lot about what I think other people who are in these partic- particular situations are are and how they feel about people like me who walk by and either ignore them or people like me who stop and recognize their fu- full humanity. So for me, that's that's the best place that I've ever. Yeah, that ever been to speak. And oftentimes I'm not doing as much speaking as I am listening. Wow. That's that's incredible. I always ask a question, Nate, about the topic of bullying. And I've worked in the field of bullying for okay. over uh, 10 years and, and heard a lot of different stories about how, you know, bullying situations could have maybe been different if mindfulness elements had been applied to it. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness maybe would have made a difference? For, for me or for a child, um, I mean, I think we're all like we're, we again. When I talked about earlier about the lack of civility, I think we're all we kind of live in a society where if you're if you're not paying attention, in many ways we're all bullied in some respect. It just matters how you decide to to um, 
to proceed. So, um, yeah, my like my son has had situations where where he felt bullied by even by a professor, um, bullied by a teammate. Um, the the one of the things we do is is just recognize that whatever that is 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 temporary. And oftentimes what people are saying about you is not so much about you, but it's a reflection about how they feel about themselves. And what's most important for you to remember what it is that you think and feel about yourself. And I'd say the other thing, Bruce, is to not give so much time and attention and weight to the negative unless you're equally willing to give the same amount of time, attention and weight to the positive. Most often, so if you say someone bullies you, but we and you and you're focusing on the bullying part. What do we do with the people who praise us? More often, when people praise us or say really positive things about us, we don't give that the same time and attention as we do to the things that are negative. So yeah, sure. Like I mentioned, looking at the TED Talk, there are comments that are negative comments. And if I spent my time looking at those negative comments, then I could say, well, people don't like me. Like I'm terrible. And I feel like I feel threatened, et cetera. But then that, then that ignores all of the people who took the time to say something positive about me. So I'm like, well, which one of the two are more important in the, in the overall um, objective of my life? And the, what's more important are the people who give me, don't have to praise me, but maybe even they just give me constructive criticism as, as opposed to destructive criticism. So that's one of the things I would, would say is, hey, find a way to accentuate the positives, um, unless the bullying becomes something physical, which is something completely different. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, but find a way to accentuate the positive things people say, and don't spend so much time, unless you use it. I use the negative sometimes as fuel, mm -hmm. but I don't think that that's a sustainable way to process your life. It's okay right. sometimes in the immediate, but you can't focus always on what people say negative about you as a way to move you forward. That's, that just kind of sucks the energy out the room. Yeah, it does. And yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah. Well, as we move forward in the interview, I first of all, want to mention your website, NathanielAturner.com. So Mindful Tribe, check out Nathaniel's uh, website and uh, his amazing books that he's written. And uh, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Nate. Okay. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful inspiration for you in your life in the area of mindfulness? I think I'm going to ask all the questions probably the same, my son. <laughs> I'm not surprised that you said that. My next question is about emotions and how mindfulness has affected your emotions or how you deal with them, how you process them. How has mindfulness made a difference there? So when I write, I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this, but you know this, uh, the first thing I do every morning in the first, it used to be first eight to 14 minutes, more like the first 14 to 20 minutes, I write about my life the way I would like it to be as opposed to how it actually is. And that in itself helps me to, to be mindful emotionally, physically, spiritually about where I want to be at, at any point in time in my life. So that uh, is that a person or did you say a person or a thing, but that's the thing that I do. And again, I learned that from a child. Right. It's amazing what we can learn from children, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to ask you about, uh, uh, breathing, because breathing is a topic that 
you know, once we start doing it in a certain way or we learn different techniques, it can make a big difference. Do you have any comments on breathing? Yeah, we, we all have to do it or we die. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. true enough. But, but I started uh, practicing some, uh, learning how to practice meditation some um, so a few years ago. So absolutely taking time to, to actually hear my breath, which is not something that seems normal. Um, but we all do, as I mentioned, we all do breathe, but yeah. And sometimes I heard you mention in one of your podcasts about walking. I do that. I'll walk and just silence everything. I'll put noise canceling headphones on and just listen to my breath as I walk or the in internally. Yeah. Walking is so powerful for sure. Yeah. Well, your books are incredible. You've written a number of them and uh, we've talked about Raising Superman. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about Stop the Bus. It's a jungle out there. Uh, we haven't talked about, I know you've got an upcoming book coming out. And then of course you've got Journey Forward, which is the one we did talk about, about journaling. Are there any other books a single book maybe that has inspired you in this area of mindfulness that you could share with us. Absolutely. The alchemist. That's an easy, that's an easy answer by Paulo Coelho. Absolutely. I think yeah. um, perhaps the, one of the most um, inspirational books that I've ever read. In fact, it is the book that convinced me that my son should leave as a 16 year old, that he should leave the country. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. What a powerful book that is for sure. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one final question. I just want to ask you if there are any apps that help you or apps that you know of that can help with mindfulness. I mean, I know there's apps like Calm people listen to. Um, so I've, I've, I've done, I do some of that. My, my Samsung phone has a, a Zen app. So it will tell me it I have it set for 10 o'clock and it makes everything on my screen go dark and, you know, tell me it's time for me to go to bed and, <laughs> and, and it'll play, start playing the Zen music so I can rest. So, I mean, that's, that's helpful. I think apps are good, but at the same time, I think we have to also make a, a decision to, to follow the direction of, of the app. I'm a little OCD, so I use, um, like the Samsung Health app, I want to get 10,000 steps every day, and it'll remind me, hey, you're, you know, you're 87% of the way, and like, well, it's 10 o'clock. What am I? I guess I got to put my shoes on and go back outside, and complete my my 10,000 steps. Or you said you're going to get 90 minutes of activity, physical activity. Well, you've got to do, you know, 20 more minutes of push-ups or some crunches or something because you only at 70 minutes. But I do use those kind of kind of apps as I think about what I want to be tomorrow. If I'm given an opportunity to be here tomorrow, I know I have to be, I have to do everything in the present to be that in the future. Right. And uh, Mindful Tribe will put all of these notes into our show notes. 
So check it out at mindfulnessmode.com. Check that out. It's been so exciting to talk to you because, you know, you've inspired millions of people around the world. And before we say goodbye, do you have a final word of advice that you would give to our listeners? Maybe there's somebody out there struggling, somebody that's having a hard time, feels like they'd like to be more mindful and to use mindfulness in their life. What words of advice would you have for them, Nate? So I got one word, and that word is who. And I would ask everyone to, to make a decision about who they want to be when their time is up. And I remind people that, for me, who is the most important word in the human language? Who appears in your obituary? Who will be spoken when your eulogies are given? And who will be the final words that are transcribed or written in your, on your tombstone or on an urn? It'll say who you were. And I, and I ask you, well, one of the ways to, for me to be mindful is to be mindful that, my, that this life is temporary. And the only way, only thing that I can do is be the best version of me possible. But I have to know who that person is. And every day, right, in, in the present, I'm required to live the who I want to be when I'm no longer here. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. And thanks for being on Mindfulness Mode today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All the best. Bye now. Best to you. Hey, Mindful Tribe. As always, thanks for joining the show today and listening to this interview that I know I really enjoyed. I hope you did too. And you can always check out my YouTube channel, which I'm working at. And I would appreciate if you if you like it, if you'd like to click on subscriber, become a subscriber and uh, just let me know what you think of the YouTube channel. I'm putting some shorts on it. I'm putting some longer videos on it. Just experimenting to see what resonates with people. So uh, yeah, check out that channel. It's just go to YouTube and click in Mindfulness Mode Podcast and you'll find the channel. So, uh, and of course you can always email me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And you know, maybe you have an idea for an upcoming uh, episode a person for me to interview or maybe you have some thoughts or suggestions maybe you uh, you know are experiencing some stress and anxiety and you'd like to touch base about what we can do to to help that so yeah just email me I'd be happy to hear from you and with that take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode <laughs>